Hello, welcome to Home Baking. This is a podcast all about adventures in home baking through ingredients, history and culture. So today is the first episode in our Bake the World series and I've kind of accidentally made (laughs) a coronation episode which was not my intention um, funnily enough but um, we are starting with England um, today which is my home country as you can probably tell or as you probably already know and we've got some really lovely bakes coming up um, with I can tell already that with all of these Bake the World's um, it's going to be difficult to choose just a few recipes because every you know country has such rich food history. Uh, but we're going to be talking today about um, the history of British curry houses. We're going to be talking about cakes, puddings, pies, tarts and biscuits. What is the difference? We will also be talking about uh, a brown sugar Victoria sandwich or sponge. We're going to be talking about Eccles cakes, which are a kind of spiced dried fruit puff pastry type of affair. Delicious. I love them. Best served with cheese. We're going to be talking about a cherry Bakewell slice. So this is an almond and cherry um, kind of like delicious pastry thing. We're going to be talking as well about two different pies. So we've got a tandoori chicken curry hand pie and also a spiced Cornish pasty which is made with beef and root vegetables which we're going to spice with Egyptian goulash spicing. Um, So there's loads to talk about as you can tell. Let's get started. Just a quick little update. So in the UK next week, we have the coronation of King Charles. Um, (laughs) We do get an extra day of holiday, which I'm very glad about a lot of workers, including myself. And what I'm not so thrilled about is that because I live in London, it's going to be difficult to travel into central London, especially. I'm hoping to meet my friend and go out for uh, lunch um, at a Pakistani restaurant in East London. Hopefully we'll be able to get there <laughs> without too much trouble. I am also, I mean, it's already kind of started, but like I just get sort of fed up with how the news gets overtaken with stuff about the monarchy, which I don't really regard as um, real news. Like I, I, you know, I don't really want to turn this into a sort of politics podcast by any means. This is all about baking, but I, I don't know. It's just I live in a poor area, and I've had a, I've had one or two listeners say like, "Am I looking forward to the coronation?" And no, I'm not because when I look around my area, I see a lot of underfunding of things, a lot of under resourced. Uh, communities and organizations uh street homelessness is worse um than it's ever been in the last 20 years um it's just there's a lot of issues and 
much as I don't think they're caused by the monarchy, the uh, coronation is costing hundreds of millions of pounds, which I just think could be a lot better spent. Um, Now, we do have a constitutional monarchy. They're not particularly powerful. But my thing is always why, if they're not powerful, why do we have them? Like if they were powerful enough to um, kind of create stability, then that wouldn't be democratic. (laughs) So either they are important and therefore like that's incredibly undemocratic. That's not a modern democracy or they aren't very important. And thus, why are we spending millions and millions and millions, billions of pounds on them when they already have billions of private wealth? It just makes absolutely zero sense. Um, The amount of land they own as well is obscene. Um, So, you know, and I think there's just a lot that goes unsaid in this country um, around how their wealth how they got their wealth in the first place. Um, A lot of it was on the backs of enslaved Africans. Um, A lot of it is on the backs of working class people uh, in this country and around the world. Um, On the backs of India and indentured servants um, or indentured, uh, what's the word, workers, basically. Um, So it, you know, and, and that doesn't just go for the royal family, it goes for the whole ruling class. And, and the the upper class in this country. So it's not just them. And they can't help the, the family they were born to, born into, et cetera, et cetera. But why we should be sort of celebrating them, putting them on a pedestal uh, above any other family is, to me, is bizarre. Um, so, and you know, there's a lot of countries that, that have uh, kind of parted ways with their monarchy, so to speak. And I just think we shouldn't have one. So (laughs) that's my opinion, if you want to know it. Uh, But let's not talk about that anymore, because, yeah, but there's just a lot of like fuss, a lot of there's a good way to sell things as well in this country. Like, you know, I saw a Victoria sponge cake being called a Charles cake. I was like, no, it's not. Um, And there's just a lot of like bunting, which is the little the little flags um, that you put up. There's a lot of just all sorts of like crapola really being um, flogged for the coronation. So, you know, it's it's I'm I'm kind of dreading it. It it tends to be a bit of a festival of um uh, of patriotism and nationalism, um, jingoism. So yeah, I'm not I'm let's to to put it mildly, I'm not a fan. <laughs> so that's that's my two cents. As I said, I'm. I said I was going to stop talking about it and then I carried on, but I, I'm actually going to stop talking about it now. Um, and I just wanted to explain my thinking behind this episode. So, um, yes. So I really wanted to celebrate the migration that has made Britain what it is today. Um, that has a very complex history, our migration, because a lot of it is connected to the British Empire um, so, for example, after the Second World War, uh, lots of people from the Caribbean, for example, were like encouraged to move to Britain um, because it would, would it would it would boost our economy to ha- have a bigger workforce. But when they got here, they experienced incredible race levels of racism. 
um, like it wasn't that long ago that black people and brown people were like routinely beaten up in Britain. Um, I've I've gone to exhibitions about it. I've read about it, and um, so beating up Asian people in the seventies was really common. Um, the Notting Hill Carnival actually came up, uh, came uh, came uh, became what it is because of it was a reaction to the racism that Black Caribbean people were facing here. Um, so and a lot of black Caribbean people at the time lived in Notting Hill uh, and, and some still do. Um, but it's a very, it's now a really, really expensive area for most people. Um, so it, it does have a complex history, right? And like, I think most people are not as against the monarchy as I am. I do have quite kind of left-wing views compared to the majority of people here. And that includes people from migrant backgrounds, but um, yeah, it, it, it's a complex history, but I do love to sort of celebrate the, the way that migrants have impacted the culture here. Um, so in terms of curry houses, so we have kind of, and this is, this is true of lots of migrant communities that, you know, when they move to a, a different country, like the food maybe changes, um, you know, maybe it's difficult to get hold of certain ingredients maybe you're catering to different tastes maybe you try new things and incorporate them into how you cook and i think that's all to be celebrated and it's it makes food cultures interesting distinct uh and, and it's not something that you can avoid either i think it's just part of being a human being in the world now curry houses in this country um, are mainly Bangladeshi and in fact predominantly from the Silheti region. It's Bangladesh is a really big country, very populous. Um, and so that's why it's not really that surprising that you could have quite a lot of migrants all from the same region. Um, so where I work, most people who are Bangladeshi background are Silheti. Um, so one of my colleagues speaks Silheti, for example. Um, although I found out that a lot of most people also speak standard Bangla. So if she meets somebody from a different part of Bangladesh, they can generally communicate. Um, also, there's a sort of a, a large minority of curry houses are Pakistani. And those Pakistani curry houses um, as, as were quite innovative in creating um, the sort of famous bolty dishes. Um, both types of curry house are very innovative, I have to say. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a really rich culture, goes back decades, and uh, people in the Indian subcontinent have lived in Britain for hundreds of years. But I guess uh, the majority of migration and the sp the springing up of these curry houses is kind of from the mid twentieth century onwards. Um, and they've invented numerous different. T new types of curry which are kind of I guess fusion dishes in a way so we have chicken tikka masala uh, which in the 90s according to the foreign secretary at the time Robin Cook was a true national dish uh, which has its kind of roots or is related to butter chicken it's rich mild smoky and orange um, and it sort of essentially is chicken that's 
you know, grilled at a high heat or cooked in a um, tandoor at a high heat and then you serve it with the sauce. Um, so it's nice big chunks of chicken. There's also korma, which is a, a British South Asian invention, which is a, a curry with a mild sauce containing coconut. Um, I mentioned balti earlier, and that is that's actually comes from the dish that it's cooked in and the method of cooking. So you would come up, you'd have, in order to try and speed up restaurant service, um, you wouldn't necessarily do things the full traditional way. You might have base sauces, which give loads of flavor, and then you would finish the dish off um, in a different pan using some of the base sauce, maybe some extra spicing, for, for example. Um, and the balti allows you to cook hot and fast to get the dishes out. And it was served in the actual dishes that it was cooked in to keep it to keep it hot as well. And that originates, as I said, in Pakistani curry houses in Birmingham. Um, so, yeah, going for a curry or going for an Indian are integral, important parts of British culture. And there are curry houses in pretty much every t- every town. Now, how did I come up with this idea to put curry in a pie? Well, it isn't my original invention. Um, in the 1990s, a company called Shire Foods started selling a chicken balti pie at football games in the West Midlands. Now, um, as with East London, uh, Birmingham is also very known for having a significant number of South Asian uh, migrants and people descended from migrants as well. Um, but this chicken balti pie really took off and became super popular all over the country. Uh, for a time, you could get versions in supermarkets. Um, and I think the company Pucker Pie still makes a version of it. And that was my inspiration in putting tandoori chicken in an all butter pastry. Now, if you want to find out a bit more about the British Curry House or you're interested in the history of food in Britain, um, particularly migration of food, you should subscribe to Vittles. Um, I recommend it on my Substack. I've mentioned them before. Uh, in particular, I I heavily drew on a brilliant article by Tully uh, Visarana, sorry, Virasana, um, from Vittles, which I've linked to in in the substack in the Substack. Okay, so that's a little bit about the British Curry House. Now, for the second part of the culture section. I want to talk a little bit about etymology. So what makes a cake, pudding, pie, tart and biscuit? Who knows? (laughs) You know, so and this is country to country as well. You know, a Boston cream pie is a cake, isn't it? Um, So an Eccles cake, which we're talking about, is a pastry. It's a sweet leavened thing, which is probably why it was called a cake. But it is basically a small hand pie wrapped in flaky pastry, which is usually rough puff or full puff. A pudding is generally something that is steamed in a basin or another vessel. So it could it could actually be um, a stomach or like an intestine of an animal. Um, that's how traditional haggis is made uh, in a stomach. And then the meat and the oats and vegetables, etc., like and spices all steam inside of that. But sometimes things that aren't made like that are also called puddings. So a Bakewell pudding is a tart, but it's made with puff pastry. It's an open pie, um, not a pudding in any traditional sense. Um, 
so when is a when is a pie a pie when is a tart a tart I generally think of a tart as being an open pie that's British English I know it's very different in America and various other English-speaking countries but sometimes even British pies don't have a top and often they don't have a bottom you know like pot pie doesn't have a bottom um and and that there's similar things in in British food culture that don't have bottoms homity pie which is a cheese and potato pie which I really recommend especially if you're cooking for vegetarians delicious that is um an open pie without a top um (laughs) now a tart I think of as I say as being an open pie with no top but it comes from the same stem as tarte in French, torte, um, torte, and tarta. <laughs> They're all Latin um, languages, right? Which usually mean cake, but not always <laughs> in various countries. Um, then we've got biscuits. Now biscuits comes from the from biscuit or biscotti, uh, which you know that that's from the Latin because French and Italian are Latinate languages, and that means twice baked. Um, so queer in French, C-U-I-R-E, not queer as in LGBT, um, means to cook, and B is like double. Um, and But most biscuits um, are not twice baked, it's just another word for cookie. Um, so British English cook is biscuit, American English is cookie. Uh, although we tend to think of biscuits as being drier, plainer and snappier. Whereas we do use the word cookie, but we usually use it for like a quite a gooey or chewy, um, less dry kind of thing, which maybe is has more t- fillings as well often. So things like chocolate chips, um, oats maybe, things like that. So there's no hard and fast rules around what's what it, it it all changes across in region to region town to town um not not even just country to country uh so there's no set rules around any of this and if anybody dares to be a pedant around you you can definitely tell them that okay so um let's go into our recipes <laughs> shall we So our first little recipe that we're going to talk about is Claire Patak's Brown Sugar Victoria Sandwich. This recipe is available via the Guardian website. Um, And it's a very, very simple cake. Um, It's essentially an equal weights cake, um, slightly less egg by weight than everything else. But it's like 250 grams of flour, 250 grams of brown sugar, um, 250 grams of butter and then four eggs um and you bake that into the you do the use the creaming method um you bake it moderate oven or low oven actually sorry um which really helps get a nice even rise I found 
uh, in 20 centimeter cake tins. It makes a very nice, um, large <laughs> 20 centimeter cake with two layers. And then you spread jam. I would recommend on the, both sides of the inside of the sandwich if you can manage that, because then you've got a nice bite with cake, jam and cream every time. Um, and it's just a very simple twist on the classic, which usually uses white sugar. It just makes it taste a bit more caramelly. Um, I think it's really well balanced because the cream is unsweetened because the cake and the jam are both very sweet. Um, and in terms of your jam choice, I think the most common jam that we use is probably strawberry for this, but you can use any jam, no problem at all. Um, you could use blackberry, blackcurrant, raspberry, uh, literally, um, I wouldn't use apricot maybe because that's a bit mild, uh, but yeah. I used plum, I think, this time, which I love because it's got a bit more acidity than a lot of jams. Um, and if you want to just go traditional, you can just use the same recipe, but just use white sugar. That is literally it. Um, and my one other word of caution is don't over whip your cream because that's what I did. Um, you can't see it in the slice picture, but you can see it in the whole cake picture a little bit. Um, but the, this was very, very delicious. Uh, went down very very well at Gemma's work um, and so I, I recommend it now just one extra thing that I wanted to say is that Victoria sponge and British baking in general is not meant to be fancy um, I saw that one of my friends from university who's American um, she was like oh I was trying to make this fancy dessert it's called a Victoria sponge cake and I was like that is not fancy babe <laughs> like all of our baking pretty much is homely rustic so like if it looks a mess, literally it doesn't matter. Nobody will care. Um, and it is also amazing how many things you can cover up with a bit of confectioners or icing sugar. So yeah, don't overthink it. It's a simple cake. It's delicious. It's good for loads of occasions. And if you're, if you have, you know, you're not as uh, cynical and uh, um, hateful as I am and you want to celebrate the coronation, that's a very good way to do it because this is a very, very British staple like cake. We all, we all love it. Um, but it's, it's, as I say, it is not, um, there's nothing complicated about it. Um, so that's our Victoria sponge cake. I'm going to talk next about the cherry bakewell slice. Um, because the other three all use rough puff. So let's talk about the this these two first. Now, um, I've talked about Bakewell pudding before, so I wanted to do something a bit different. Bakewell pudding uses rough puff pastry. Um, Bakewell tart uses short crust. That's the only real difference between them. Um, so they both have the, the pastry case, the layer of jam, the layer of almond frangipan, which is a kind of like a cross between a cake and a custard, but it's essentially just almond flour or ground almonds. Um, our, our ground almonds are generally blanched um, or, or, you know, the skins are removed. So I think the close and they're quite finely ground. So I think the closest in um, the US is almond flour from my understanding. Um, but it's just that and butter and egg and sugar. That's it. It's really simple. Um, and you mix those together, you put them in the pastry, 
and you might want to put um well you put the jam in then you put the frangipan in sorry and then you might put some almonds on top and bake it off and that's that's basically your bakewell tart or your or your bakewell pudding um if you're making the tart traditionally you do not blind bake that's my two cents my opinion about it it annoyed me when i looked this up because nearly every recipe that i saw blind bakes my mother's from derbyshire which is where bakewell is um which is a hilarious name for a, a place that's famous for a baked good isn't it bakewell it's just as well it wasn't called bake terrible and yeah my mother makes hers and a lot of traditional recipes do not blind bake the the base of a bakewell tart especially and actually the idea is that the kind of pastry kind of blends together with uh the stuff that you put in it it's not meant to be baked separate um be blind baked um but what you do want probably to get a nice crisp bottom is ideally to use like an enamel or a metal pie dish um and that's just to prevent a sort of soggy bottom uh, but you know, it's not that likely you'll get a soggy bottom anyway, because it's not that wet a filling. Um, if you're using fresh fruit, that would be a lot more hazardous. Um, so that's a, what a bakewell tart or pudding is. I think with a bakewell pudding, it might be more traditional to blind bake it. Um, if you're lost at what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about, blind baking is where you bake the pastry on its own before you add the filling. Um, but I would need to learn more about bakewell pudding to be able to tell you for sure. Um, what I'm going to cover instead of those, though, is a cherry bakewell slice, which uses a shortbread base. It's incredibly rich and luxurious. Um, you do bake the shortbread first. Um, kind of adds to the roasty toastiness a little bit. Um, and... It's just very, very good. It's it's more luxurious than a traditional bakewell tart because it's using this quite thick layer of shortbread. It's using loads of butter. Um, it's quite sweet, um, but I, I did really like it in fairly small slices. Um, and you can also, you don't have to do it in a tart tin. You can just use a rectangular tin. Um, I've also given uh, instructions for using a round tin, but mine did take a lot longer. So I would recommend the rectangular tin that she uses, which is a seven by 12 inch or 18 by 30 centimeter one. Um, so you just rub in your butter and flour for your shortbread. Uh, you pat that down, um, sorry, you stir in the icing sugar and salt. You pat that down to create an even layer. You could use a spatula or a spoon to improve the evenness. You then bake that for 20 minutes, quite a high temperature. So preheated oven at 190 C, 375 Fahrenheit. Then you reduce the oven down to moderate. So like 350 Fahrenheit, 180 C. Cool the base for 10 minutes. Uh, and then you spread over your jam layer. Um, I needed more jam than she said because I didn't partly because my jam was quite chunky and I didn't like blend it so you just want enough jam for a nice layer um you don't want a big thick layer so just use what you feel is correct there and then you make your frangipan using the creaming method you cream the butter and sugar and then you add the 
um, the ground almonds and you add the eggs and just combine them. You then dollop that on top. If you can spread it very gently, feel free. That's what I did. But if you can't, it will spread out in the oven and it's better to not dislodge the jam. For as a very, very helpful tip from Claire Patak. Um, so yeah, and then um, you might want to sprinkle over your flaked almonds and then you bake it until it's golden and set. So in the rectangular tin, she says it takes 30 to 40 minutes. I used a 10 inch round cake tin and it took 53 minutes. It took a long time because it was, um, it had to kind of penetrate right to the middle and it's quite, um, yeah. So that I wouldn't necessarily do that again. I would probably use a rectangular tin next time. Then you want to kind of cool it completely before serving because um, it helps the layers set up properly and you get nicer slices. And you might want to garnish with a cherry or extra extra flaked almonds if you like. So that's really it. Um, this recipe I adapted from Claire Patak. And it's just curious, isn't it? The two recipes that I've started with are via a Californian baker who moved to Britain. And this is her kind of reinterpretations of our classic baking. And I think she's done a phenomenal job. I love it. Um, if you've not heard of her before, she's got a new book out called Love is a Pink Cake. She um, worked at Chez Panisse in California. She now runs Violet Bakery in Hackney in East London. And she's just great. Really good baker. Um, her bakery is brilliant. Um, the recipes are very solid. And I really want the book. <laughs> so watch this space to see if I cop that. All right. So we're going to be moving on to our puff, uh, rough puff pastry uh, um, recipes now. Let's talk about rough puff pastry. So there are a lot of different techniques that you'll see and proportions of butter and flour. My go-to is quite a rich one, quite a luxurious one, which is equal weights of plain or all-purpose flour and butter, um, plus salt, especially if you're using unsalted butter, and then just bringing it together with cold water, like chilled or iced water, um, just enough to bring it together. Um, you don't want it soggy, obviously. Um, and what I do you will see recipes that like freeze and then grate the butter. I prefer to cut it into small chunks. I shingle the chunk the chunks with two fingers and a thumb. So it's like in discs, uh, small discs, kind of like coins a little bit like that. This is a technique, by the way, that I got off of. Uh, what's her name? Oh, damn. Um, wrote the book on pie, Erin um, Jean McDowell. That's the name. <laughs> and obviously with a rough puff, you don't want it to turn into breadcrumbs because then you'll have a short crust. So you still want to see these um, like coins of butter. Um, and then you add just enough cold water to bring it together into a dough and then wrap and refrigerate for at least 20 minutes. Then there's the next stage, which is you are going to actually laminate it just a little bit. Uh, not as complicated as puff pastry by any means, but you once it's rested, you roll it out 
um, with a lightly floured surface, lightly floured rolling pin. Um, now, because I've put so much butter in the original dough, if I have to add a bit more flour here at this stage through the, just to sort of um, enable it to roll out, I don't, I'm not then as worried about adding too much flour. Does that make sense? So it's such a rich starting recipe. Roll it out into like a rectangle and then you um, fold it into thirds. So one third over, then the other third on, on over that. Then quarter turn it. Um, roll it out again, fold it into thirds again, and then you're going to rest it again for 20 minutes. And then um, you can repeat that as well if you want. So you can do a second round of um, rolling out and um, and then folding into thirds twice. Um, okay, so that's how you make a rough puff. That's my preferred method which I partly got from, I said, as I say, I got the technique, the shingling technique from Erin McDowell, and I got the actual recipe, the proportions from Gordon Ramsay. Um, okay, so that's our rough puff. And then if we're going to make Eccles cakes, now Eccles cakes, just to give you a bit of background, they are from Lancashire in the north of England which is um, a county over from Yorkshire. Um, there's a bit of rivalry between the two, so be careful. <laughs> Don't say, are you from Yorkshire? Um, to uh, somebody who's from Lancashire and vice versa, if you can avoid it. Better just say, where are you from, rather than assuming. Um and they're a simple, delicious bake. If you don't like dried fruit, you probably won't like them. But I, I do like dried fruit. Uh, not, I'm not a huge fan of our Christmas cake, um, but I do like it in many applications, like mince pies, Eccles cakes. Um, I like tea loaves as well. I just don't like the heaviness of the our traditional fruit cakes. Um, so these are really nice as a little snack, part of an afternoon tea. They're actually fairly large if you make them the traditional size. Um, and yeah, they are traditionally served with cheese. Um, you won't often get them served with cheese, even here, I would say. But traditionally, you would serve it with Lancashire cheese, um, dried fruit and a salty cheese are a marriage made in heaven. Um, thoroughly recommend. And Lancashire cheese is a white, crumbly, slightly salty cow's cheese. Um, but you could serve it with a nice cheddar. Um, I quite like it with uh, pecorino, you know. So this is Italian sheep's cheese, which is quite... Mold it, it, depending on the age of it, it's sort of m mild and salty. Um, I will leave that up to you, whether you want to serve it with cheese or not, but that is my recommendation. So we've talked about the pastry and we are going to use 250 grams of the flour and butter here. Um, for the filling, it's, uh, butter, muscovado sugar, dried fruit and peel and zest of two lemons and an egg, pinch of salt. You also want an egg wash and some coarse sugar to sprinkle over. 
Um, so once you've made the pastry, you essentially just mix together the filling ingredients and then you cut out circles of 10 centimeters or four inches. You can make them smaller if you like, but that is the traditional size. And you put about a tablespoon of filling in each one and then top with the other half of the circle. You press the edges together with a fork or crimp with your fingers. Then you turn them over so the crimped side is on the bottom. You don't want to see that side in this particular bake. Don't know why. Um, and then you uh, egg wash them, sprinkle sugar over them. You slash three holes in them, like three, um, three slashes, basically, in the top of each one. If you're, if you, when you've got, if so, say you've got leftover pastry, this is for all rough puff. What you don't want to do is just roll it up, like ball it up. What you want to do is you take all your scraps, you layer them on top of each other, and then you roll it out. And that will stop it becoming a short, short crust consistency and it'll keep it as a laminated dough. Um, and then you will bake those for 20 to 25 minutes at 200C or 400 Fahrenheit, uh, turning around in the middle of the bake if your oven, like mine, doesn't cook evenly. And they just get really nice and golden brown. Um, so that is our Eccles cakes. And now we're going to talk about curried pies. <laughs> okay, we're talking now about tandoori chicken curry hand pies and just before we get started um the reason i talked about the sort of history of the british curry house and i think that british food has a reputation not wholly unfairly of being a bit bland so that's uh something that i wanted to change and not make something too bland and this is really really delicious it's a curry recipe from chetna and then the pastry recipe that we used before and this makes enough for curry the night before for about four people and then also to make four quite large hand pies um, and then I would serve that curry with naan or uh, or rice um, it's a really lovely fluffy basmati rice is really really good with it um, yeah, and then the pies, I might serve that with a with a yogurt sauce, a writer, a bit of salad on the side. Um, but I, I kind of liked having the curry on day one, just with some rice and stuff. And then it meant that the, the filling could totally cool down and then I could put it in the pie on day two. And we had that for dinner on day two. That's how what I would kind of recommend is doing it like that because um, it does make enough curry for about eight portions um I would say uh so yeah and it's super 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 delicious all right so um you make a marinade um with grated garlic grated ginger chicken thighs um I've used boneless uh for ease um whereas the Chetna McCann's original recipe she uses bone in I think um it also reduces the cooking time as well if you use boneless. And I used 
tandoori masala, which is a spice blend. It's quite easy for me to find this. And if you've got a South Asian or Indian section in your local shop, or if you can get to a South Asian grocery shop, you should be able to find something or something similar. Um, if not, I've put in a link to a spice blend that you could use instead. And you also want yogurt and salt. And then you marinate the chicken thighs. You could do that, you know, the day before. That would make it even better, probably. Um, or at least half an hour, you want them to marinate in that. And then for your curry, there's finely sliced onions, potatoes, uh, which are also sliced. There's red chilies, garlic cloves, um, more tandoori masala spice mix, um, tomato puree, coriander leaves, for which is to finish it off, and a bit of hot water. Um, and then there's the same puff pastry that we used before. So if you're doing what I did and having curry one day and then um, the pies on a subsequent day, you want to use the same amount of pastry, the 250 gram um, or 8.8 .8 ounces of flour, same amount of butter. But if you want to do all of these in all of this curry in, into pies, then you're going to need to sort of double that pastry recipe. And it will make eight very really quite large pies if you do that or four large ones if you uh, do what I did. Um, so what you do for the curry, if we start off with that, so we've talked about the marinade. Um, for the curry, you uh, cook your onions, you add, uh, you cook your potatoes in oil as well um, to sort of brown them. Then wipe out the frying pan and fry the chicken. Um, so there's a little bit of, there's quite a lot of steps in this, but it is worth it in my view. Um, scrape out any black bits. It's more tandoori flavor. It's delicious. And then set all of those onions, potatoes, chicken aside. And then you make a little paste with chilies, garlic, and hot water. You um, There's a, it's like a dried whole chilies. Um, I did this in a blender, or you could use chili flakes and grate the garlic and chili, um, uh, or use fresh, yeah, or you could use like fresh chili. Um, okay, and then what you want to do is to sort of cook that off. Uh, I've lost my place. Come on, Kate, you can do this. <laughs> you, you can do this. Um, yeah, so you fry, actually, sorry, you fry off the tandoori masala and the tomato puree to bloom the spices and make the tomato puree taste a little bit more rounded and less some sort of metallic. Then you add your garlic and chili mixture. Then you add your potato and sort of cook that off a little bit. Then you add your potatoes and onion and coat in that mixture. Um, and then you're going to add hot water to cover the potatoes and then simmer that until the potatoes are cooked through. Um, and then if you're going to serve as a curry, you want to cook some white basmati rice. Um, I personally do this in the microwave with twice as much water as in, in weight 
um, volume works as well, actually. Twice as much water by weight or volume as rice. And uh, I cook it in a heat-proof bowl in the microwave, um, and it's perfect every time. But you can use whatever method you prefer. Um, and then you uh, add the chicken once that has kind of the potatoes have been cooked through and it's reduced. Add the chicken so that it's hot, like cooked through, and then serve it with your rice. Or and or um, you once you've eaten the curry, if you're going to have that. Uh, if you're not, then you go straight to this step. You let that that sort of curry cool down completely, um, and then you're going to wrap it in pastry when it's cold. So you follow the same steps as before to make that uh, that rough puff pastry. Um, you roll it out to quite thin, like three millimeters or a quarter of an inch. Cut it in large triangles. Um, put a big spoon in the middle of each tri- uh, of half of the triangles, and then put another triangle on top of that. Crimp the edges with a fork. And then if you can fit them in the fridge while you preheat the oven, all the better because cold pastry, hot oven is how you get crisp pastry. And and it sort of prevents butter leakage. Um, You can make up a little chutney or writer if you like. And then once that is baked, it's going to be on uh, 190C, 375 Fahrenheit. You want to brush that with egg wash. Um... And you want to sprinkle it with um, some nigella seeds, black onion seeds, if you like. Bake that for 30 minutes. And then serve it with a writer, which is which is a yogurt sauce. The most simple version is just like yogurt, lemon juice, some herbs, and a bit of salt. Um, and then, yes, yeah, serve it with some chopped coriander as well. And... The reason I included this is just because it is phenomenally delicious. I love this curry. It's a new favourite. And I wanted to sort of do a different spin on a traditional pie. And following on from that, we're going to do another little spin on a traditional traditional pie. Um, the last thing we're talking about is a spiced Cornish pasty. Let's talk about Cornish pasties for a second. Now, my research with this one took me to a real organisation called the Cornish Pasty Association. And I'm sure that some Cornish people are probably, uh, (laughs) the odd one here and there, um, might be slightly offended that I've included them in England. I remember when I visited Cornwall quite quite a long time ago now, like 15 years ago or so, um, I saw like... Cornish independence graffiti um which was really interesting to me I'd never really it never really occurred to me that um uh, they might want independence um but yeah the sort of small minority do um part of the basis for that is that they do actually have their own language it's not very well spoken anymore but they do have their own language and it's a kind of Celtic language I believe um and Cornwall is is a really far southwest it's the furthest southwest county and it's kind of known for its lovely beaches nice seafood um sort of holidays um 
nice restaurants in there as well. So uh, surfing, people surf. Um, so it's kind of a, yeah, it's it's that, that sort of vibe down there. Um, and Cornish pasties, what I found out was they should be made with beef, um, potato, some sort of root vegetable, could be multiple root vegetables, onion and short crust pastry, or rough puff, which is what we're going to use here. And they should be a D-shaped crimp, D-shaped and crimped at the round side. And if you were going to eat these, like normally you would just eat it out of the bag. But because I have served this with sauce and chutney and salad, I did use a knife and fork. Um, so that's what we're going to be going for. And we've used here... Uh, an Egyptian spice mix, um, a kind of goulash spice mix, which is used with beef quite frequently, which is what gave me the idea to use it here. And this makes quite a lot of food, just to be aware. <laughs> so what you can do is you can bake it and freeze it. And then you can, um, you can uh, defrost it and then um, reheat thoroughly in the oven. You could also just, you know, have a lot of people around. Um, you could eat it over a couple of days, but it does make sort of eight to ten pasties. Um, I actually made nine, which is a really weird amount. Um, and we're going to use more puff pastry than the pre all the previous recipes. So we're we wanting we're wanting here three hundred seventy five grams of flour and the same amount of butter and a heap teaspoon of salt or a lot less if you use salted butter and an egg wash for uh, an egg for egg washing and then the filling is beef skirt or chuck or something similar to that potato and also um, some sort of root vegetable I used uh, I actually used parsnip but you could use swede or turnip or rutabaga, um, which they're, it's very confusing. Turnip is a different vegetable in England, but turnip is actually what, in, in Scotland, turnip is what English people call swede, um, if you see what I mean, which is also called rutabaga in some countries. And then, or you could use parsnip like me, or you could use like celeriac, which is, or celery root, um, whichever you prefer. Um, all of that stuff is going to need to be cut into a quarter inch or half centimeter dice. And then you also want olive oil, salt, pepper, and then allspice, coriander, cinnamon, and ginger for your spice blend. And then to serve, I think because of the root veg and the spicing, and the beef it's nice to serve it with something a bit fruity so i i had it with mango chutney but you could also have pica lily or maybe an italian mustarda something along that kind of line you don't want it to be too strong because it'll overwhelm the flavor but a sort of nice fruity bounce um mustarda if you've not heard of it it's a italian kind of pickle or like chutney type thing where they use some mustard in the making of it and it's you can get it in all sorts of different fruits so you can get like apple mustard 
um, I don't know, fennel, mustada, probably all sorts of different things. Um, and then I also served it with a nice hot sauce. So you want something that's got a bit of sharpness to it as well as a bit of heat for that. And I also had it with a dressed green salad. And actually here I used a honey and Dijon mustard dressing, which was lovely. Uh, so it was just honey, Dijon mustard, oil and sherry vinegar I used. And um, as always with a dressing, you know, you have twice the amount of oil to the amount of vinegar or acid, um, depending on how strong the acid is as well. And then the honey, I just did a squeeze and I did like a teaspoon of Dijon mustard. Um, and, you know, I just make enough to use pretty much straight away is what I tend to do. And I just shake it in a jar and then it, because of the honey and Dijon, they're both emulsifiers. So it helps like emulsify it into one even um, kind of dressing. Whereas a simple kind of lemon and olive oil dressing won't really emulsify. So you just have to sort of shake it really well or whisk it really well before you pour it on. Okay, so we're going to follow the same process for to make the rough puff. And then what we're going to do here is we're going to make our filling. I've simplified this from the thing the same things I saw online. So I fried the onion in olive oil with salt and spices until it was sort of translucent golden kind of um, place. And then I added the diced root veg, coated it in the onion and spices, added a little bit more oil because um, it needed it. But, you know, you can do that or not, depending on what you think it needs. Because you don't want it to be sort of dry and burn. Because then you're going to place a lid on the pan to sort of steam fry that veg until it's just fork soft. Um, so I thought this is a much better way of doing it rather than having two different pans. Um, and then you want to let those vegetables cool. And then you mix the vegetables and beef together. The beef is going to be still be raw because it's just going to cook in the when it's baking. You don't need to pre-cook it because I feel like if you do, it will be very dry and overcooked. Um, all right. So just to sort of finish off, to assemble and cook this, you want to preheat your oven to 200 C or 400 Fahrenheit. Roll out your pastry to a few millimeters thick or an eighth of an inch or so. Um, you, Because it's quite a lot of pastry, you might want to roll out half at a time while you chill the other half. And you don't want it to get too warm, obviously. Um, and then you cut around a 20 centimeter cake pan, or you could use a piece of parchment that's the same size. Um, so you want 20 centimeters or eight inch um, circles. Um, and just sort of place those circles on lined baking trays, or you could you could stack them in between layers of baking paper. If that's easier, try and keep them cold. Um, it's okay if they sit out for a bit, but you definitely don't want any of the butter to start getting too soft or melting. So do sort of cover them and put them in the fridge if needed. Once you've got all your circles, as I stated before, you don't want to ever ball up a, a puff pastry. You layer it and then roll it um, so that you've got until you've got 
the amount of circles that you want or need. Then you dollop the mixture um, onto each circle so they all have roughly the same amount of mixture. You don't want a mean one, do you? Um, then you fold it over so you've got a D shape, crimp it with your fingers and then egg wash it and cook it for 30 minutes until golden brown and cooked through. Um, again, if your oven cooks unevenly like mine, you want to turn your trays around halfway and then you want to serve it with your chutney and hot sauce and your green salad. Um, and what we did is we had them over a couple of days um, and we also uh, sort of reheated them in the oven. So they're really nice um, as leftovers as well in a sort of high, moderate to high oven. So sort of 190 C, 375 Fahrenheit, um, about 15 minutes, a preheated oven, in case that's not obvious. Um, and yeah, that's that makes a lot of very delicious beef spiced pasties. It's a really nice warm spicing that because beef is so savory, you can kind of get away with the fact that it, it's kind of slightly on the sweet side, that, that kind of um, spicing. Uh, and it's just super delicious. Um, it's moist. Uh, the beef is not too overcooked. You know, it's not overcooked. Um, when you reheat it, it might dry out a tiny bit, um, but it'll still be really yummy. And then obviously you can still use the sauces as well. But yeah, on the first bake, it, it wasn't, um, it was still really moist and lovely. Um, so that is all of our recipes. It's been a real kind of marathon. So thank you for sticking with me. And then I'm just going to talk about what's going to coming up next on the pod, basically. Right, so our next episode is going to be about using breakfast cereals and baking. It's quite a, ch a change, isn't it, from this one? Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to be using Rice Krispies, Bran Flakes, um, checks or most sort of shreddies type things. We're going to be using oatmeal um, and cornflakes, all in different um, kind of applications, basically all kind of either cookies or bars, biscuits or bars. So I'm really looking forward to that bit of a change of pace. And then after that, we will probably be having an episode on Portuguese baking. Um, and then just in the sort of longer term, we're going to have one at some point soon on Syrian baking. We're going to have one soon on Ube. We're going to have one soon on donuts. So I will let you know what order those are going to be coming up in. Um, so, yeah, I really look forward to talking to you next time in two weeks, all about uh, <laughs> breakfast cereals in cookies and bars. All right. Well, I hope that you are well. Take care. If you want to get in touch, it's flourbuttereggssugar at gmail.com. Please sign up to our Substack, 
because then you've gonna you're gonna have the proper written recipes, all the quantities and everything. It's homebaking.substack.com. That is also our website, so you can also check there for the recipes if you're not signed up or you uh, don't want to look at your emails for some reason. You can just go to the website, um, and I think that's it. So yeah, I, I I look forward to speaking to you soon. Feel free to drop me an email anytime. I love hearing from people. Um, All right. Bye. Got a question for our PS. Do you wash your rice? So I've always thought that you absolutely had to always wash rice depending on your application. So like if you want sticky rice, you might not be washing it that thoroughly because you want a kind of starchiness to sort of make it stick together. But if you want fluffy rice, you always wash it, right? Well, that's what I thought until I stopped. Like I use a really high quality basmati rice um and I don't wash it and it comes out perfect every time and I put in and I cook it in the microwave like it's sort of I'm sure that it's offensive (laughs) to some people but that is the technique that I learned from Rukmini Ayer um who says that her mum is um washes the rice religiously but her sister does not um and she says it doesn't seem to make that much difference um so I will take her word for it and um you can probably tell can't you that you know another reason why it's important for me to talk about the contribution of migrants in Britain is you know my all my pretty much all my favorite food writers are from um people of color especially women of color um and a lot of them from migrant backgrounds so Benjamin Ebowehi, I think, you know, from a West African background, um, probably Nigerian, I, I reckon. And, you know, um, Rukmini Iyer is, uh, both her parents are Indian, um, Indian British. So one of them's from uh, Bengal, one of them, West Bengal, which is in the Indian side. One of them is from South India, from um, Chennai, I think. Um you know, and so Ruby Tando is is a mixed race, um, partly from a West African background. Um, so I could go on. Gurdeep Loyal is from a Punjabi Indian background. Um, yeah, so a lot of my favourite food writers are, yeah, people of colour or from migrant backgrounds, most of them women. so um it's really important to me to kind of show that this is actually a very um this country isn't 
kind of white people sipping tea and watching Jane Austen. It's there is some of that for sure, um, but that's not all that we are about. Um, and I love I love it for that reason, you know. Especially living in London, you get you get so much uh, richness in its culture. Right, so that's I'm going to exit my high horse now. I'm going to step off um, and see you soon. Bye bye.